Support for this podcast comes from Canva. When you look good, you feel good. But when your presentations look great, it can feel like you're walking on a cloud. You can design stunning work presentations, docs, whiteboards, and videos with Canva. Start with a designer-made template. Use it as a springboard for your design. Add images, graphics, charts, and more from Canva's massive media library. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Welcome to the final episode of the Prop G Pod in 2022. Can you believe it? Gosh, I'm freaking out. This show wouldn't be possible without our listeners. So thank you for showing up every week to support us. We've had dozens of great conversations with Blue Flame thinkers who join us on the show every Thursday. So for our final episode of 2022, we want you to sit back, relax, and listen to a mashup of the best insights that we heard all year. We've covered the war in Ukraine, failing young men, inflation, cybersecurity, even pornography, and so much more. I love interviewing people. It's something I'm not especially good at. I was sort of used to being the guest, not the interviewer, but occasionally I like to zero in on one point of insight and then repeat it such that I remember it. So with that, for the last time in 2022, go, go, go! Our first clip comes from Ralph Wenzel, the founder and CEO of Joker, a global platform for grocery delivery at a hyper-local scale. Talking about the business's value proposition brought me back to my college days when I thought ordering Domino's was as good as it got. Customers' requirements towards online propositions have become significantly more sophisticated. The customer itself has become more sensitive, more educated, and there are overall more customers using um, online services and online propositions than ever, than ever before. Yahoo believed at one point of time that they're resolving on the online search proposition sufficiently up until Google came um, with different algorithms, with a better advertising product, with different ancillary services, and resolved on the need for people to search something online differently, more efficiently, um, with a better eye on the customer than, than other previous, um, basically, search engines out there. And I think also the awareness of online entrepreneurs that the disruption, uh, the technological disruption does not need to only happen on the user experience side on the front end side in terms of what the application, the, the websites, um, or basically the payment facility would, would enable. But the main disruption, and that's what we are focused on, needs to happen on the procurement and supply chain side. By how we procure, when we procure, how data-driven do we procure? How do we organize the replenishment of our warehouses? How do we bring supply significantly closer to the demand? How can we disintermediate middlemen and as such, also build a proposition that does not only adhere to customer requirements, but it also ensures economic and ecologic sustainability. Because I think also for me personally, these are two very important uh, parameters that we want to ensure with this 
business that we're building now. Joker ended up shutting down its U.S. operations back in June 2022, but we still remain quite bullish on ultra-fast delivery options. Next up, we have our conversation with Margaret O'Mara, a professor of history at the University of Washington. We discussed diversity and the history of Silicon Valley, plus Professor O'Mara gave us her thoughts on the role of the metaverse in our society. Silicon Valley was kind of grew up off to the side of the main action of American and global capitalism. It was tightly connected to um, flows of capital coming out of Wall Street and old money. It was tightly connected to Washington because of the Cold War and the space race. But it was kind of, you know, it was a place that grew apricots and prunes and had about three restaurants that all closed around nine o'clock. And you you were, it was a very small town mm-hmm. and you had, it was a single industry town. It was a, you know, a company town that was built around tech. And in those early days, they, you know, engineering programs were entirely white and male. Um, there weren't, it wasn't significant inflows of immigration, you know, kind of meaningful immigration until the 1970s, which was transformative and, and critically important. Um, but also it, it was just a very, um, it was a, you know, where did the original, the, the OGs of the whole industry, where did they all come from? They, they didn't come all come from elite programs necessarily, nor elite backgrounds, but they were coming from um, engineering environments, MBA programs that, you know, then Harvard Business School didn't let women in, right? Mm-hmm. So these are incredibly homogenous places they're coming coming from. So this is the pattern. This is the what Steve Jobs described as handing the baton down from one generation to the next, which again, incredibly generative and critical to understanding why Silicon Valley is able to do what it does. You have people who are executives, operators in one tech generation. They have a big exit. They become VCs in the next. Mm-hmm. Then they pick the winners of the future generations. And it isn't just, as you know, and your listeners know, it's not just money. It's mentorship. It's showing people how to run a company. It's showing how a bunch a bunch of 22-year-olds who might be good at engineering but don't know anything else. It's being there, connecting them in with the right lawyers and the right uh, marketing and PR people yeah. and all of the kind of wraparound services that you would need. You know, all of these kind of qualitative factors are shaping these decisions in ways both conscious and often unconscious. No one put a sign on the door saying no girls allowed, but effectively that did play out that way. All right, moving on. The final interview from Q1 featured James Andrew Miller, where we discussed HBO and the streaming wars. Full disclosure, I love HBO. It's had a huge impact on me. I remember... Uh, six feet under and thinking, I love this show because it makes me feel. I remember Game of Thrones. I've watched Game of Thrones with my 15-year-old and it was an incredible bonding experience. I think Sopranos is arguably the best show ever on television. Succession is New York. I just love H to the B to the O. They do more with less. Anyways, we talked about the culture and economics behind the streaming juggernaut. From 1972 on, Scott, there was never a stock called HBO. Mm-hmm. HBO was never on its own. Mm-hmm. It always had a parent. And so as a result, the dynamic between HBO and its parent company, starting with Time Inc., then we have a Time Warner merger, which was, I consider it to be a real disaster. Mm-hmm. Then you have Time Warner taking control of Turner. Then, of course, you have you know, the Armageddon of AOL and eventually AT&T. I mean, all of those things were huge on the Richter scale. 
And what happens is I was very interested in tracing the pedigree of how HBO is able to navigate and somehow survive those incredibly turbulent waters that are going on around it. I mean, there was a lot of infighting between HBO and the Warner Brothers studio. There were financial exigencies imposed on HBO because of the AOL merger and what the AOL people wanted to do using HBO. I mean, there were, you know, it's like the game of shoots and ladders when we were younger. And yet somehow HBO is able to prevail. And, you know, we're looking at 50 years now of of content. That's not to say that it didn't have a lot of potholes along the way, but I think the HBO story for me is is noteworthy, not only because of the incredible success it had with content, but also because it is a network that had to endure many different challenges that a lot of other networks didn't. We discussed so much more about HBO's history and what makes it such a great platform in that episode. I highly recommend James' book. It's a very insightful read. Ray Dalio is our next guest, known for his um, sort of iconic or, or titanic role in the professional world and his, his economic analysis. But what struck me about this uh, episode was how he dealt with the grief of losing a son. I have a principal pain plus reflection equals progress. And so we reflect, we talk about it, we help each other, we give others love. And the love that others gave us uh, made a huge difference. It really helped me to know how to help others better. Um, and then um, I chose, we chose, my wife and I and uh, others, to keep him with us in our ways. My wife and I, um, each morning, we sit down and before we get going, we have a cup of tea together. And so what we did was we um, had a picture of him. We had some flowers and some uh, and a candle, uh, but we also then journaled memories of him. Um, in other words, we uh, there. It's a bittersweet experience, the pain of losing him, um, and at the same time, the being with him in that way. We didn't want to take him. We didn't want to lose him. We didn't want to not think about him. We wanted to think about him. And we wanted to, so what? So we feel the discomfort and we feel the pain. And so we found ways of uh, keeping him close to us and, and to his family. We, we do. Um, and that, over a period of time, helped us. We, we, somebody sent, me, sent us a book on how to grieve. And it has a page every day that you would read, that we would read every day. And it had a lot of good advice in it. So we kind of went into it and we did what was natural. And yeah, and the lessons it provides, first of all, it put, puts in perspective what matters. You know, you can get tripped up on on, on something. Uh, you, you know, um, we all every day, there might be a scrape your knee or you lose some money or you do this and the other thing. Wow, did it put in the relationships. The matter of, of what we lost and mattered for what we have to the ability to um, savor what we have. Um, and, and very much, it's like the serenity prayer. You know, God, give me the serenity to accept what I can't control. There's life, and it happens to you, and you go through it. So I think that that's very much the case. And then that appreciation, that lesson that I learned about really what matters and what's most important and how to savor that. And again, relationships 
um, such, such as savoring my grandchildren and all of that. And so that's how we, um, you know, have been going through it. And, um, that, you know, that's, that's where, that's where we are. There are many elements of, of life, which are joyous, exciting, and so on. And you can feel those at the same time. It, don't worry so much about the displeasure or the pain. You know, you just go into it and over a period of time, it becomes more sweet than bitter. This conversation with Ray really moved our team, and it remains one of our favorite interviews. Next up, we highlight Noam Bardeen, the founder of Waze and former VP of product at Google. Noam is launching a Twitter competitor called Post. Full disclosure, I'm an investor in Post. In this interview, Noam explained a term I love, tech folly. That I was consistently surprised on in Silicon Valley is how many or you know what, let, let, let me define differently. You know, folly in, in, in Barbara Tuchman's book was defined as a mistake that at the time people doing it knew they were making the mistake. And she wrote about, about countries and military and things like that. But to me, you see the same thing in tech. You see mm -hmm. large tech companies going at a project that from day one, it's obvious they have no skills or ability to achieve anything in it, but they'll do it anyway. Um, and it, to me that if you think about, you know, building a phone, right? Amazon building a phone or Facebook thinking about building a phone at the time, Google today running a phone. Like, why does that phone exist? Why are you doing, why do you think you have skills to build this and to compete in this space? And no one seems to ask those questions uh, very much. And I think we're seeing that over and over again. And, and this is the opportunity for startups, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Startups are specialists and the large tech platforms are generalists. And today, I believe, at least especially in mobile, you have to be a specialist in something narrow you are the best at it, and the, and money is not a a uh, money is not really a tool anymore since the the, the playing field is more or less leveled around capital. So the fact that a company like Google or Amazon or Facebook has the money to go after building a phone does not mean they're going to be good at building a phone. That self awareness is missing a lot of times on companies that have been very successful in one area, and then obviously assume they can apply that success to anywhere else. Next up, we have the co-founders of Asusu, Abby Wamemo and Samir Gol, on how their unicorn company is trying to help renters improve their credit score with rental payments. We talked about the state of play in real estate, and I think you'll enjoy hearing about the good work they do around building credit. Our core ethos has always been, no matter where you come from, the color of your skin or your financial identity, it shouldn't determine where you end up in life. And how that intersects with the real estate industry is we built a platform where we partner with large owners and operators of multifamily or single family real estate. And we do three things for them. The first is that when renters pay rent on time, we report that data into the credit bureau so that renters can build and establish credit while landlords get on-time payments. The second is when renters fall behind on rent, we pair them with zero interest loans paid directly to the landlord, which helps keep people in their homes and keeps our landlords cash flow healthy. And then finally, we kind of tie it all together with an analytics platform, really tracking the ESG impact our partners are having. And so through that platform, we now cover about 2.5 million rental units across all 50 states. And so we're able to see a lot of these trends around supply and demand, inflation, rent increases firsthand from our uh, user base of renters and uh, landlords. So I'll let Abby share a little about himself and kind of dig in as to how this intersects with the problems that you outlined. Yeah, thanks a lot, Samir. Um, Scott, my story started in the slums of Lagos, Nigeria. One thing my mother fundamentally believed in was the importance of education. So she afforded my school fees to one of the finest high schools in the land, 
which essentially opened my eyes and led me to this magical place called America. I immigrated from 80 degree weather in Lagos to negative 22 degrees in Minnesota. You know, during that transition, something important happened. Um, I did not have a credit score, walked into one of the biggest financial institutions in Minneapolis to borrow money, was turned away and had to go borrow money at over 400% interest rate from a payday loan lender. I think Samir gave you a good overview, but ultimately what we're trying to do at ASUSU is how do we leverage the data we have um, to bridge the racial wealth gap that we have in this country. I know you paying your rent is probably the least exciting thing in the world, but Abby and Samir's company is one worth paying attention to. Now, two things that are very exciting are money laundering and soccer, two things that Oliver Bulla made a connection between when we spoke to him back in May. The key difference between the US and the UK is that the US has a very robust enforcement apparatus, um, the FBI and other agencies, that will actually investigate financial crime and prosecute in a way that is vanishingly rare. Here, these agencies are incredibly under-resourced in the UK, and that is has been a strategic choice by successive governments to essentially under-regulate the system to attract more money here for precisely the reason that you state. The calculation has been that this is essentially free money, right? You've got you know money flowing in here, fees are being earned for moving it around. It's easy. It's easy work, and essentially. You know, you, you can you can attract money into your economy, which that can then be used to build roads and hospitals and schools and all the good things that that we want. Um, as you say, there is a, a moral point which has been insufficiently understood by politicians that essentially it's not free money at all. Someone is paying for it just at the other end. You know, if money is being you know sent here and being used to build schools and hospitals and roads in this country, often that money has been stolen from schools, roads, and hospitals in Nigeria or Angola or Venezuela or Russia or Ukraine or wherever. Um, and that's one point. And the second point, which I think is, is as important in the long term for why this is a bad business model, is that you end up with a sort of crowding effect in the economy that it becomes so profitable to move money around, to serve the needs of the oligarchs, to be a butler in my term. Um, whether that's a lawyer fighting their legal battles or a reputation manager, you know, fighting the press or a, an investment manager dealing with their money or, or whatever, that you end up attracting many of the brightest and the best citizens of your country into the butlering profession. And you end up essentially with a brain drain away from other segments. Um, you know, you, you have ended up with this, and, and the soccer pyramid is a pretty nice metaphor for it, with essentially this incredibly wealthy clique of clubs at the top of the game and everyone else sort of scrabbling around for the various crumbs that might fall out of their windows. Um, and that's, again, the, 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 the sort of structure of the British economy, that this butlering industry benefits hugely a pretty small number of very well-connected people. Next is a guest we love talking to here at Prop G, Ian Bremer. Ian returned to the pod three times this year and delivered such insight every time. In June, we discussed the global economy, a time when inflation was getting pretty bad and the war in Ukraine was all over the headlines. So I want to touch on your book, The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World. You talk about the notion that we are wildly underprepared to deal with uh, additional global health emergencies, transformative climate change, and the next technological revolution. 
So how did we end up here? And if and what can be done such that we can have more coordinated global responses to these huge existential threats? So, Scott, we we ended up here because we're in a geopolitical recession, right? And, And it's a term that doesn't really exist, but should, because, you know, people recognize boom and bust cycles in economics. And when you have a bus cycle, we have a playbook and we know what we need to do with response. We have the we have the both the monetary and the fiscal tools and central bankers get together and treasury secretaries, finance ministers get together, say, let's give this a shot. Geopolitics has cycles too, but because they happen freak infrequently, because they're long cycles, we don't recognize them as such. But it's actually a very simple process. What happens is you create institutions. And when you create them in architecture, they reflect the balance of power that exists in the world at the time. Now, over time, the balance of power shifts dramatically, but the institutions are sticky. They don't move. So just a few weeks ago, you had the Secretary General of the UN say that the Security Council was broken. Why is it broken? Well, because Germany and Japan, the two economies that are most committed to multilateralism and rule of law, can't be allowed in because they lost World War II. And Russia, right, which is led by a war criminal, can't be kicked off because they won. That's a really stupid reason not to reform the Security Council. And yet it means it's broken. Well, that's not just true of the UN. It's true of so much of our international architecture. It's true of NATO. It's true of the World Trade Organization. It's true of NAFTA. On and on and on. So what happens is in a geopolitical recession, your institutions are so far removed. They've become so obsolete and delegitimized from the existing balance of power, from the priorities and, and, and desires that the governments that matter on the global stage, that dominate international relations, now want. Um, and so they break. They start to break. And when that happens, you get a lot more crises. And that you don't like those crises, but the purpose, the point of my book is to say that in a geopolitical recession, the crises are also the tools that you use to strengthen, reform, and build new institutions. And we see that most obviously with the Russia war in Ukraine, but we also see that with climate change. And we have an opportunity for that with disruptive technologies. We largely failed with the pandemic. And we can get into all of that if you like, but that's that's the basic architecture of the book. What would this institution or institutions look like if we were going to try and address those things and make real progress and get in great fighting shape, get ready for the next the next big global disaster said, you know what, we have to just get in great fighting shape because the enemy's coming, we're going to dig the right trenches, we're going to get our armaments, the right technology, the right, we're ready. We're going to get ready this time. What would that look like? Well, it's not one global government and it's not one big institution. And fortunately, it doesn't need to be. I mean, I think what we're seeing is that there needs to be a lot more flexible geometry in our institutions on in terms of which actors and, and doing what, that a response to climate change requires institutions with actors that are relevant for that, which is very different than a response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I'll give you an example. Well, first of all, let me tell you what can't happen. So I, I start, the, this book is not meant to be some idealist, uh, let, let's all come together and it's going to be fine. We just need to recognize that we have these problems because you've read my book. No, not at all. 
um, I, I, I start the book with a recognition, number one, that the United States is deeply politically divided and dysfunctional. We're the most powerful country in the world for all the reasons you and I just talked about. And in the next 10 years, we're not going to fix that. Like, I have a lot of things that I know that if we did the following things, we could become much better off as a government. We're not going to do those in the next 10 years. So let's take that off the table. Secondly, the U.S.-China relationship is the most important globally in the world, and it is completely devoid of trust. That is not going to be fixed in the next 10 years. I can tell you things we could do that would make it more trusting. It's not going to happen. So let's take that off the table too. What I'm saying in this book is that even given a persistence of a deeply dysfunctional U.S. political system and U.S.-China relationship, we can get this stuff right. Next up, we keep our focus on China, revisiting the conversation we had with Lisa Lin and Josh Chin on China's surveillance state from back in September. We discussed TikTok, how China violates its citizens' privacy, and how China's surveillance state and Apple intersect. Apple's a really fascinating company in, in China. I mean, they, they are one of the most popular phone makers and device makers in China, um, and they also produce um, they source the production of a lot of their devices in China. They're invested in, in, in the country in a way that very few other American tech companies are. You know, they do have, they're, they're required by Chinese law to store Chinese customer data in, inside China. And they do that on servers that are controlled by a state-run company. And so, you know, Apple says that they, you know, that they have that that data is encrypted. They're not handing it over willy-nilly to the government, but it's still nevertheless stored on, on servers that they don't ultimately control. Um, and, and so if you are an Apple user, a Chinese Apple user, your level of privacy protection is much, much lower than uh, an Apple user anywhere else in the world. That said, you know, the Apple's products are still popular amongst dissidents because they are still, an, an iPhone is difficult to crack. It still has some some of the best, probably the best security in a in a kind of in a consumer device, and so in in Xinjiang, you know the police there have these handheld scanning devices, and they'll sort of wave people down on the on the sidewalk and just randomly plug uh, smartphones into these scanning devices. And a lot of those devices actually just don't work with Apple. Um, so you know if you're a Uyghur and you have the money uh, and you want and you want to sort of protect your data, you'll still go for an iPhone. Lisa. Sure, I'll talk about it from the supply chain perspective. Um, Apple walks a very fine line in China between not wanting to anger the Chinese government and trying to continue to do business with China. And the, the reason why I say this is because it's got very strong supply chain links to China. China is by far the best place in the world to produce smartphones. And you can tell because Apple produces most of its smartphones uh, through Foxconn in places like Zhengzhou in China. And any sort of gadget or component, any tiny obscure gadget that you're looking for for your phone, you can definitely find in China. And that's the reason why it's been very difficult for Apple to actually move its supply chain relationship away from the country, despite all that pressure from the U.S. government and from advocates to try and diversify its supply chain. And, you know, the second thing I probably would point out is Apple has huge consumer base in China. Even though, and, and this has continued, even though Chinese smartphone brands have fast become some of the best-selling brands in the planet. Uh, things like, uh, brands like Oppo, Vivo, uh, Huawei at a certain point in time as well. 
and Apple is able to do this because it's got the cachet um, and people are still willing to pay for Apple products. If you still remember, Apple introduced the Go iPhone in China years ago. I mean, that was predominantly for the Chinese market. It knew its position. Again, that was Josh Chen and Lisa Lin, the authors of Surveillance State, Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control. We'll be right back after a quick break. Stay with us. When your work presentations and docs look good, you look good. You can design stunning work presentations, docs, whiteboards, and videos with Canva. You can start with a designer-made template, then use that as a springboard for your design. Add images, graphics, charts, and more from Canva's massive media library. Or get a huge head start with AI-powered Canva presentations and docs. Just describe what you want with a few words, and Canva will generate amazing slides and text in seconds. It's AI that anybody can use, no matter what department you work in or whatever work task you need to get done. Look, we all need to visually communicate at work. Canva makes it easy to get your point across while looking professional. And at the end of it all, that stunning Canva presentation is going to make you look good. Wow any audience and finish your work faster. Start designing today at canva.com. Design for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back to a year in review of the Prop G Pods Conversations. We'll now hear from Michael Pollan. This was by far one of the most interesting episodes we've ever done because it's about, you guessed it, magic mushrooms and how they affect your mind. What's amazing about psychedelics is that they don't just do one thing, um, that they do very different things. And this is not true of all drugs. I mean, if you take cocaine or an opiate, you have a pretty predictable set of physiological effects and, and mood that you can, you can kind of count on. Psychedelics on any given day could produce a completely different experience. Um, and, uh, and even in the same person. Um, and, you know, there's no imagery in the, in the molecule. There's no spiritual experience or therapeutic experience in the molecule. It's a catalyst and it brings all sorts of interesting material into your conscious awareness from your, from your subconscious. Um, so I, I think that the intention that someone brings to it, um, has a decisive effect. I mean, Timothy Leary understood this. He talked a lot about set and setting. Setting is obviously, it's the, is obvious it's the physical setting, but set is your mindset. So if you're looking for a spiritual experience, if that's your orientation, if you want to make contact with something larger than yourself, which is kind of how I define a spiritual experience, there's a good chance that that's what you'll have. Um, if instead you want to work on your relationship with your mother or, um, or deal with, um, you know, some issue in your life, you're setting priorities, you're, you have a big decision, there's a good chance that you'll end up dealing with that. Um, and then if you just want to go to a concert and have a good time, um, that might happen, or you might have uh, a cataclysmic experience and realize you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
Um, so it's there. There are many different paths that uh, psychedelics can take you on, and a lot of them has to do with your intention. Although I should say too that it doesn't guarantee anything. Uh, you can go in with one intention and come out with another. Will 2023 be the year the dog finally does a guided trip? I've done trips, but they haven't been guided. I could have used a guide. I don't know. For now, I'm sticking to edibles. Anyway, let's switch gears to revisit our interview with Mariana Matsukato, a professor at the University College in London, where we discussed how capitalism varies on a global scale. The word capitalism is thrown around a lot, and we sometimes forget just how many different types of capitalisms there are. There's a variety of capitalisms, and in some countries including the United States and the United Kingdom. We have a very dysfunctional form of capitalism. And by that, I mean, we have a business sector, which is overly financialized. Something like $5 trillion have been spent just on companies buying back their own shares to boost stock prices, stock options, and executive pay. There's nothing inevitable about that. That's a outcome of specific decisions that have been made from by companies um, in terms of just maximizing their shares as opposed to maximizing perhaps something else that we could call stakeholder, not just shareholder value. But similarly, we have governments that are governed in very problematic ways, at best just fixing market failures when they happen. So filling the gap of the lack of private sector funding and some things that are good and correcting for the bads, you know, through carbon taxes, for example. And their relationship is problematic. You know, anytime you use the word ecosystem with a biologist, they might catch you and ask you what you're actually talking about because a biologist knows what economists often don't know, which is that ecosystems can be predator prey, they can be parasitic, or they can be mutualistic and symbiotic. So I believe that in the dysfunctional parts of the world, we have very problematic parasitic forms of partnerships and ecosystems between these different actors, public and private. And so, you know, my work has basically said we can do much, much better. We can also learn from other parts of the capitalist world, for example, how they govern companies, how they govern government. But the main thing is that with the current status quo globally, with this form of capitalism, we're not going to be able to tackle the biggest problems of our time, whether they be around health, whether they be around the digital divide, and especially around climate change, which is, you know, basically the clock is ticking. We're big fans of Professor Matsukato's work, and we recommend you check out the rest of this episode. Moving on, if you know us, you know we love cities. New York City is the greatest city in the world, and London, where my family now lives, is a close second. Jor Polig had a lot to say about the future of cities and brought some light to how international labor markets have changed for workers. So the industry that Jamie Dimon and uh, David Solomon represent has been losing employees for about a decade now. It's much less important than it was pre-2008 or even uh, around 2012. Here in New York, even, you know, tech is now a bigger employer than uh, banking and finance. And even within finance, some of those banks, they employ 30, 40, 50,000 software engineers. Now, so that means a whole cultural shift internally. These, these are no longer these, you know, traders who are coming to like sweat on each other on the trading floor. These are coders and they have their own habits and they have their own options as well in terms of where they can work. And if you want to hire them and you, have, you want to have the best people, you will probably have to adjust uh, to whatever it is that they're interested in, or you'll have to hire other people that are not the best, which is probably what the banks are doing now. So a couple... And I sound like a boomer when I say this, but I want you to respond to two theses around remote work. One is if your job can be moved to Boulder, 
It can be moved to Bangalore. So there's some risk. And I think ultimately people who end up with remote, totally remote work will have uh, less leverage in terms of compensation. And two, that young people especially really miss out when they don't get into an office on a regular basis in terms of connecting and forming uh, new relationships. Your thoughts? I think that to a certain extent, if your job can be moved to Bangalore, uh, you know, yes, it will not remain in Boulder. However, if that can happen, it will happen regardless of whether you go to the office and insist on, you know, doing your job from there. So the factory workers in Michigan, you know, if they keep coming to the Ford factory, that's not going to bring back the, the jobs from, from China or from Mexico. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Uh, so I think, unfortunately, the way our economy works, you know, if something is doable, then it will be done. A silver lining here is that for a lot of the knowledge-intensive jobs, I think moving them overseas is, is a little harder than it seems uh, because of cultural reasons, because the best talent is still in America. And a lot of it is because in-person interaction still matters, but it doesn't matter on a nine-to-five basis every day. So, you know, these teams still meet. Maybe it's once a week, maybe it's once a month, but proximity still matters to them. So there's that. But I think overall, we will see more and more knowledge work and even service work, things that we didn't think could even be outsourced, like fitness instructors or some types of medical professionals or other kind of very hands-on things suddenly move overseas and uh, being done remotely, at least to a certain extent. Uh, And that's going to happen, whether we like it or not. For our final guest clip, I want to end on something that I am uh, really uh, passionate about and invested in, which is guiding young men to be better people and understanding how our nation has failed this cohort. Richard Reeves, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute, shares the same passion. And in our episode, he discussed an interesting idea on how to close the academic gap between girls and boys. Well, one of the things I think we should really consider is starting boys in school a year later than girls to account for this developmental gap. Less because of the gap at five, there is a gap at five, but more because of the gap at 15. So build that in and actually just create, that would actually create more of a level playing field, right? Boys being a year older chronologically would be closer developmentally to the girls in their classroom. And so I think that's something that school districts, administrators should consider if not as an act of policy, at least allowing that or encouraging that. Interestingly, the private schools do that. I I got the data from one very well-known private K-12 school on the East Coast, and 30% of their graduating senior boys were a year old for the year, that at some point they'd had that extra year. So this is like an open secret in elite circles that it's not a bad idea to give boys an extra year. So why not do that more generally? And then Some of this stuff I think is obvious to parents, but not always to policymakers. Start school later, have more recess, have more exercise, much more phys ed, more extracurricular, more coaches, more men in in the classroom, and some messaging in the school, which is as empowering to boys as it is to girls about the importance of educational success. Right now, the messaging in schools, you know, walking through the the corridors of my kids' high school, there was poster after poster about girls' college night, girls on the run, you go girl, black girl magic. I love all that. Nothing on the other side. Nothing about boys. The presumption that the boys are just going to be okay is is false empirically and is now becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy in these, in these educational institutions. So this cultural messaging about educational success is also hugely important. And then as parents, look, I don't need to tell most parents this, The school system assumes your son has a prefrontal cortex. He doesn't. 
you're going to have to be the substitute prefrontal cortex for a few years. In fact, that's virtually the definition of parenting a boy, being a substitute prefrontal mm. cortex for a few years. Yeah, and that. that's what everyone's doing. So you are going to invest more in your son than in your daughter. And that's not because you're sexist. It's because he needs more help. This episode was produced by the PropG Media's intern, Adonis Fryer. Special thanks to our producers, Caroline Chagrin and Drew Burroughs. Thank you for listening to the PropG Pod from the Vox Media Podcast Network. We had a wonderful time in 2022, and we're excited to be back in your years again in 2023. What a great time to be alive. What a great time. How could we be more fortunate than to live in America? How could we be more fortunate to live in the time we live in? Simple. To live in this time in America. We'll see you in 2023. Thanks to Canva for their support. You're busy, there's no denying that, and we all wish for just a little more time in the day. So why not let Canva help you get your work done faster and more efficiently? You can get started with their AI-powered presentations. Just describe what you want with a few words and Canva will generate amazing slides in seconds. It's AI that anybody can use, no matter what department you work in or whatever task you need to get done. Finish your deck faster. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work.